fool. What if she is the one? It's a tale as old as time. Oh, oh no, it, it isn't. isn't. Oh yes, it is. Oh, oh no, it, it isn't. It is, and it will be even older unless you let me finish. Anyway, as I was saying, it's a tale as old as time, a song as old as rhyme, Beauty and the Beast. Our tale starts in the small village of Manchester, where Belle, an intelligent, fresh, young postgraduate is trying to decide what to study for her master's degree. I do so love cosmology, but gravitational lensing is also wonderful. How am I going to choose? What about interferometry? What about spiral dragons? What about galactic structure? What about a star like me? What? I'm not going to put up with sexual harassment like that. If you think that's funny... No, no, you misunderstand. I study this particular star in Ursa Major. It's quite fascinating. Oh, okay. Sorry. But I think I should continue looking around first before I make my decision. And so Belle continued through the department, distracted by all the posters on the wall, completely missing the danger do not enter signs on the doors she passed through. Psst, cabinet. Do you see what I see? Probably not as well as you can, Telescope. What is it? It's a human being. A young one. In our room. No, it can't be. No one comes in here anymore. I tell you, it's true. Let's just hope we can get her out of here before he hears her. Hello? Is anyone here? <laughs> Who's there? Who comes into my domain? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Is this the... Jodcast recording studio, then? Rot! How dare you! This, this is the Pulsar room! Oh, my goodness! No! Where's the door? You're not leaving, not yet! You've trespassed into the darkest corner of the place, and you're not going anywhere. What an eccentric performance. You have no right to keep me in here. I'll call security! There's no need to do that. Yes, we need your help. What? A talking telescope and a filing cabinet? Yes, we've been cursed. Well, you are in the pulsar room. Yes, no, yes. But not only that, we used to be students just like you. Then we forgot to prepare a segment for the Jodcast. And the editors changed us all into objects. And me into a beast. I was the one with the recorder. <laughs> so now I'm a telescope. And I'm a filing cabinet. And I'm a novelty statue of a princess. Ooh, a princess! I can't believe this is still going on. Does anyone even remember why the whole princess thing started in the first place? I believe the person behind all of this had left it out. But it was brought back by popular demand. Yeah, so pipe down, princess princessy face. Someone is going to pay for this. I don't even study pulsars. You poor things. Is there any way to break the spell? There is. But it's surely impossible. We've got to try. You're right. We've got to do something impossible by the time this pulsar stops spinning. What is it? Get someone 
genuinely interested in pulsars. And how long is it going to take for that pulsar to stop spinning? Ten billion years. That's surely not long enough. I know, I know. Oh no, it's happening. What's happening? That's the alarm for the drug traps. We'll hide until it finishes these days. After what happened to us. But why not listen to it and stand up to your fear? It might be worth it. Really? Really? You never know. Too late. Here it comes. The Jogcast, not in our backyard, with George Vendo, Fiona Healy, Max Potter, Minnie Mao, Benjamin Shaw, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, December 2016, Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jogcast. I'm Charlie, and joining me in the studio are Ben and Fiona. Hello. Hi, Charlie. Hey, guys. And in the show this time, Ben, Minnie, and George answer your astronomical questions, and we interview Dr. Christina Romero Canizales about LERGI, the radio survey of ultraluminous infrared galaxies. But first, before all of that, Minnie talks to the new director of JBCA, Professor Mike Garrett, in this month's Job Bite. Hi, everyone. This is Minnie. I'm sitting here with Professor Mike Garrett, who is the director of the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics, and I'm terribly excited to be interviewing him today. Do you want to say hi, Mike? Hi, guys. So this is really cool because I believe that, Mike, you are the inaugural Sir Bernard Lovell Chair. Could you possibly tell us how you came to be in this esteemed position? Well, I actually started here as a student, I guess, about 30 years ago, uh, maybe 25 years ago. Um, So I did my PhD at Jodrell Bank and also worked a bit at the university. And then I left for for 20 years and I heard about this Sir Bernard Lovell chair and basically it was an offer I couldn't refuse. Sir Bernard... Well, he's a real legend in radio astronomy. To be the inaugural chair is really a bit of an honour, and one that I just couldn't refuse. So I'm happy to be back here and to have this position. So did you actually get to work with Sir Bernard when you were a PhD student? I didn't know. I only saw him from a distance, so I remember him walking along the corridors, and I was too scared to ever talk to him. Other people of my generation did, but I was always too scared. So was he, he scary? He was a bit scary, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes he was. But once, I did go up to him once, and got, I got his autograph on one of his books, um, Astronomer by Chance. So... I think that's the biggest interaction that I had. But, of course, I watched him and I saw what he did. He was a very interesting man. You should sell that on eBay. (laughs) (laughs) Worth watching. That's really exciting. So you said you did your PhD at Jodrell Banks. And these days, PhD students are mainly based here in the Turing Building where we're recording today. Back in the day, you said you also worked at the university. How did it? Well, I had a temporary lectureship here when I left, so I was working mostly here in the Schuster building in Manchester, doing laboratories and doing some teaching. But yeah, I started off as a PhD student at Jodrell Bank, sort of living on site in one of the cottages there, which was a very interesting experience. That's so cool. I love the site out there, but is it fun for PhD students or does it get a bit old after a while? Well, it has some advantages. You're right next to the telescope, so, you know, if you want to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, then you can do that. But yeah, after a while, it's good to get into the city or to go home and be sort of enjoy pubs and all the clubs and all that kind of stuff. I don't so. understand. It sounds like you're trying to tell me there's life outside of astronomy and that's a concept <laughs> not familiar to us. 
<laughs> well, sometimes there is, yeah. So, yeah, it was interesting to live there. And, of course, it was a very interesting time to be there. Um, there was lots of activity. All the students were there. All the staff were there. Everyone was kind of intimately involved in what was happening with the radio telescopes. And, and now that everyone's was... here. <laughs> well, I think... There's also advantages to that. We have a much more diverse research portfolio, so we cover just about every topic in astronomy you can imagine. Whereas back then we were really focused on radio astronomy and the use of our own facilities. What I'd like to do you know, in the future is bring back a lot of that engagement that we used to have between the telescopes and the researchers here in Manchester. That's really cool. Hopefully we'll talk a bit about that later on. So I've also got written down here, you were director of Jive Astron and now JBCA. Is this a thing? Are you collecting directorships? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> no, I'm not collecting directorships, but my previous job as director of Astron in the Netherlands, I've done that for 10 years. And I think that's long enough to be director, both for the person that has to do the job, but also the people in the institute. It's good that they have a change and someone with new ideas. So, uh, yeah. I know the mood at Astron was quite somber that you had to leave. And certainly as I was a Jive postdoc, everybody talked very fondly about the years you were director there. Yeah, no, I love being director of Jive because my real passion is VLBI, very long baseline interferometry. Although I do a lot of other things, but VLBI has always been really important to me. And working at Jive allowed me to do the things which I thought were really important, which was to make VLBI much more accessible to everyone. That was really the thing that I focused on before I became director. And then eventually I became director only for a few years, in fact. I think I was only director for four years. But during that time, we were able to push EVLBI. So we really got EVLBI working as a real tool for researchers. So that was really an exciting period. So for our listeners that don't know, EVLBI is when you can do instantaneous VLBI, which typically isn't possible because of the large data rates and long distances. So typically we have to send our disks in VLBI, very long baseline interferometry, to a central correlator. And I don't know on Jodcast if I've actually talked about this. I love the EEVN. It's amazing and it enables you to do VLBI on a much shorter time scale than previously available. So as you know, I love Jive. <laughs> well, when we started on EVLBI, even I didn't think it was actually going to be possible. Really? No. And actually, the person who had the vision was Richard Scalizzi, who's actually here. I just kind of implemented the vision and got the money for the vision. And in, in fact, so we got a lot of money from the European Commission. Um Many millions, in fact, to do wow. it. But at the start of it, I was kind of unconvinced that it was possible because I worried about, you know, okay, you could maybe get two or three telescopes connected, but could you get all the European telescopes connected? That seemed quite difficult because they have to be connected with optical fibers and many of them are located in very sort of remote locations. But especially through the European funding, we managed to do that. We started at very low data rates, so about 32 megabits per second. And now I think we can do gigabits per second. Right. So I would never have dreamt that it would have happened so quickly, to be honest. But I always felt that if we could do it, it would be great because we would get immediate results and immediate satisfaction. And we could be more experimental because if we had detected sources, then we could modify the way we were going to observe them, etc. So I'm so happy it's worked out so well. 
I love the E, EVN, EVLBI. And as you say, accessibility was a big drive of yours. And certainly I find the EVN to be the most accessible, very long baseline interferometer that I personally use. So I'm a big fan of the EVN. Yeah, when we started the pipelining of data, I believed a little bit different from EVLBI, but I really believe you could pipeline VLBI data. But no one else believed that. So Why even, is that? Well, I think it was just because, especially in the EVN, all the telescopes are a bit different. It's not sort of standard where you can think of each telescope being the same, like the VLBA in the US. So somehow there was always a sort of manual aspect to how you did VLBI data analysis, how you got the calibration of all the telescopes in the right format. So... People didn't really believe it was possible. Even the guy who was working on it for me, who was Cormac Reynolds, who actually implemented the pipeline, he didn't believe he could do it. But he could do it, in fact, in the end. And that's the basis of the pipeline that's still used today. Right. Um, and it's a really amazing pipeline. Yeah. We can make preliminary images straight off the bat for the users. I love it. I mean, I use it myself. You know, it's great for me because, well, I don't go to the images, but as long as I've got calibrated data, I can do anything. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you have a really broad breadth of research interests. I know you do, you've already said VLBI. I know that you're leading groups in the SKA. And I'm really interested in hearing you talk a little bit about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Did you want to tell us a little bit about your research interests, please? Yeah. When I did my PhD, I started doing optical spectroscopy. So I used the four meter telescope in Kitt Peak in Arizona. So I did a lot of that. So you were based at Jodrell Bank, the like heart of radio astronomy yeah. in the UK, doing an yeah. optical PhD. Yeah. Okay, go yeah. on. <laughs> so my supervisor was Dennis Walsh, who discovered the first gravitational lens. And one of the things we were doing was taking spectra for that project. So I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed Kitt Peak, I have to say. And the other aspect that I did was um, I did a lot of uh, modeling, so writing computer software. So I was writing a lot of software on what were then sort of mini supercomputers, like the first Unix boxes, like the Alliant and Convex and things like that. So I became very sort of good and expert in computing, which has served me well through the rest of my career, actually, even as a director at some level. I even system managed computers at Jodrell Bank, so I did all the Vaxes and the Unix machines and Sun workstations. And, I think I've heard of uh, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're kind of ancient, but really great machines. I was doing a lot, but one thing I was doing was also I'd gone into VLBI, and I quite liked the international aspects of VLBI, both in terms of the instrument is spread across a continent or many continents. That appealed to me. So did you use the Kit Peak VLBA antenna? Like, how did you get from optical to kind of VLBI? Well, part of my PhD project was also to do very long baseline interferometry on these lensed quasars. Right. It was a sort of single object PhD, and the double quasar 0957 plus 561 A comma B. That was my thesis, but... It it meant that I was doing lots of different things to try and understand more about that system and gravitational lensing. So I did VLBI on the images. They had radio emission, and that got me into the world of VLBI. And I think that broadened my horizons because I saw sort of VLBI as a high-resolution imaging instrument that you could apply to anything. So as soon as I finished my PhD, I realized I didn't want to do much on gravitational lenses any longer. I'm, I'm kind of impatient. I always want to go into the next thing and I get bored really easily. So I didn't want to do lensing ever again. And I kind of moved on to more general radio surveys and using different radio instruments, but also using VLBI for galactic objects and extra galactic objects in the distant universe, um, high redshift, AGN, star forming galaxies, all that kind of stuff. 
I also like medicine for red astronomy. You've done everything. <laughs> I know at Jive you had the largest project that Jive had ever had to correlate yeah. with the EVN. Yeah, I think I set records for a decade on, on, <laughs> on that. And that was the idea of normally when you do VLBI, you make very small high resolution images, but you only cover a tiny fraction of the sky. Right. Otherwise you have bandwidth smearing yeah. and things. So I realized nearly 20 years ago that Computing had developed so far that we had larger disks, we had larger uh, processors, and that we could actually do better than that with VLBI. We could actually make the same size of images as the VLA or eMerlin or whatever. And I didn't know if it would actually produce any science when I started along this route, but in fact, it did. So I was quite lucky, and especially being able to detect very faint sources, which is something I really enjoy. I like the faint sources, not the bright sources, but the really <laughs> faint ones. So do you also use Merlin and eMelon for your work? Yeah, occasionally, yeah. But of course, I hope to do a bit more on that in the future. But yeah, no, I've used eMelon, especially in the past. Yeah. So given your breadth of research interests, what would you say is the science result that you find most interesting or the one you're most proud of? Well, in astronomy, there are a few sort of really kind of fundamental relations. So one of them is the far infrared radio correlation or the infrared radio correlation. And so that was first sort of discovered in the early 1970s, people looking at local galaxies and measuring how bright they were in the infrared and comparing that to the radio emission. They saw there was a very tight correlation for local galaxies, and that was extended over the years with bigger and bigger samples. And I guess what I'm most proud of is looking in the Hubble Deep Field to see if that relationship would hold for galaxies that were much further away. And so uh, this was more like in the mid-infrared, so it was data from ISO, which was a satellite in the 1990s or so. And I think you were using 24 microns for that? No, we are using um, 15 microns, I think. And yeah. I have read the paper, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely know we use 15 microns. So it showed that that correlation was still operating at cosmological distances, which was a bit unexpected in the sense that it seems like this correlation just holds up no matter what the circumstances are, whether you're in the distant universe or the local universe, whether the galaxies are big or small, you know, they can even have AGN in them and they still show the far infrared radio correlation and the mid infrared radio correlation. So um, it's a bit of a puzzle. Actually. I wrote a paper about the far infrared radio correlation when I was doing my PhD. And then I wrote a poem about it, and I won a prize for the best student talk, humble brag, <laughs> about the fine print radio correlation. You're very good at poems, right? <laughs> but yeah, at least until when I followed this science, I think it holds out to Redshift 3 or 4. It's yeah. over, well over two-thirds of the age of the universe. It's a cosmic conspiracy, as yeah. far as I understand. Yeah. That's really cool. So... How did you get into the search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Um, I suppose I've always been interested in that. I think it was one of the topics that inspired me when I was a small kid. You know, the idea about life on other planets. Are and... there aliens out there? Is there something you know that we don't? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> I don't know anything. I mean, maybe there are aliens out there, but I don't know if there are or there are not. So, I mean, definitely from an early age, I think that was one of the things that made me interested in astronomy. I've always been interested in it all the way through, but I only really started to kind of work on it in the last maybe five, six years or so. So is this sort of waiting for a signal, searching for a signal, or are you working with people actively to broadcast a signal? How are we going to find out if there's life, or are we even going to contact any putative life out there? Well, I kind of 
been slightly associated with what's called communication society, so when you're looking for signals from extraterrestrial intelligences, but that's not really my main thing. What I'm more interested in is, in general, just looking for any kind of features or any kind of things that you might see in astronomical data. So like transients? Well, transients, for example, I think are extremely interesting. I've always said that, you know, the first SETI signal will not be detected by people interested in SETI. I think it'll be detected by pulsar astronomers or people that look at planetary transits, exoplanets. I think it'll come from somewhere else and it won't come from actually the people that really want to detect it the most. So I think what I'd like to do is try and make people aware that when they look at astronomical data, they shouldn't just think that this is just some kind of physical system, that they shouldn't rule out that there might be some effects in there in the data that actually are due to the fact that there might be extraterrestrials that use a lot of power or they transmit at certain frequencies or they have megastructures around stars that gives you occultations, for example, when you look at planets, planetary systems. So I'd like people to think broadly and widely that maybe there's something out there that is a signature of advanced extraterrestrial uh, intelligence and that it actually sits in our data. So it really yeah. is probing the unknown and not knowing what to search for, the unknown unknowns, I guess. Yeah. That's um, very cool. We have a habit, you know, for example, in radio astronomy, we have lots of signals that we call radio frequency interference. And the first thing that we want to do is throw those out of our data, right? We try and get them out of their data and we don't care what they are. You know, we just know that somehow it's not astrophysical, so we should get rid of it. So if you keep on doing that with astronomical data in general, then you can end up throwing away a lot of interesting stuff and maybe SETI signals. Right. One astronomer's RFI is another's data. I think at the long wavelength array, um, one of my friends was studying lightning. So he was looking at low frequency data at the long wavelength array in New Mexico, USA. And he was giving a talk and one of the astronomers facetiously pointed to the Milky Way, which is very apparent in low frequencies and said, what's that? And lightning physicist was like, oh, that's just RFI. We don't care about that. We get rid of it. <laughs> so, you know, all yeah. of the galaxy was RFI yeah. to the lightning yeah. physicist, which I thought was quite cool. So do you think that the SKA will revolutionize our ability to search for extraterrestrial life? Well, I think it's certainly a big step forward in terms of how deeply we can survey our own Milky Way, for example, and maybe even looking at other galaxies. So the problem with SETI, for example, is we don't really know what we're looking for. That's a bit of a problem. And, you know, if we think we're looking for something like maybe we produce here on Earth, so the radio emission we produce from technology like radar systems, etc., we don't know how bright those things are going to be. And so every step forward in terms of sensitivity or in terms of the frequency range or how much time resolution you have in the data, you might be one step away from detecting that SETI signal. So every time you make a big step, I think it's certainly going to be interesting to see what happens. Well, yeah. I have heard that like most of the big discoveries with the Hubble telescope were unexpected, unpredicted. So I'm assuming SKA is going to uncover so many things. How involved are you with the SKA as the JBCA director? Well, I used to be very involved. I used to be on the SKA board, so I spent a lot of time on the SKA, especially when the big decisions were coming up, and I think I had a lot of input into, you know, 
thinking about the site decision, for example, for the telescopes. So it was a very exciting time to be there and to be part of all of that. You know, there was a lot at stake for two host countries. So that was very interesting. I, I'm not on the board any longer and now I stepped down from that. But as director of Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, we do have the SGA headquarters on our doorstep. In fact, I was just over there yesterday evening talking to people. So yeah, it's going to be part of my life in the future, that's for sure. And I'd I'd like to try and make sure that we have good connections with them. And I think that'll be very important for making sure that not just Trudwell Bank, but the UK community as a whole has good access to the science coming out of the SKA. That's very cool. So that kind of leads us into the other thing I wanted to ask you, which is kind of your vision for JBCA. I remember a colloquium you gave in New Mexico a couple of years ago. And the thing that really struck me that stuck to my mind was you were talking about as director of Astron, how for you a priority was bringing the science and, you know, maximizing the science from the telescopes as opposed to merely running an observatory. What sort of things are you planning on doing here? Can you tell us a bit about that? We have a fantastic instrument in the Lovell Telescope and one of the things we'd like to do is we'd like to really make it easier to combine together the Lovell Telescope with the other telescopes that we run. So that would be very useful for pulsar observations but also SETI observations for example. You combine the power of all those telescopes together so you have a very sensitive system. And we'd like to see the Lovell Telescope enhance email and the sensitivity there. And in fact, we'd like to upgrade that instrument so that it's more sensitive, that it has new receivers, maybe higher frequency receivers, for example, and can observe over a larger bandwidth. So these are all technical upgrades, but I'm very interested in seeing email and, and what we do, actually reaching out to the community letting the community know what a fantastic instrument that it is and then actually servicing the community so if you know someone has a good idea we help them at all stages of the process so when they try and prepare the proposal when they get the data helping them to analyze the data just the kind of thing that we did in jive a long long time ago how you set up evian and jive. email and does that to some extent already but i don't think enough people know about it for example and I think we can even do better than we do at the moment. We need more people to be able to do that, but uh, I don't think it's impossible. You were mentioning engagement between the telescope and research. That would be a huge boost for email, and I think it's a fantastic instrument, but at least myself, I found it quite a sort of confusing instrument thus far. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't be any easier in the sense that I think VLBI as a concept, and the way you have to analyze the data is much harder. So email and data, I think we can do a good job in making it much more accessible to people. So email, and I mean, it's a connected element interferometer, which is very cool. And yeah. it kind of straddles the conventional interferometers like the VLA and VLBI, which typically aren't connected element interferometers. So yeah. I think that's very cool. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us today and telling us a little bit about who you are and your vision for the University of Manchester's JBCA. I do have one final very important question for you. How often do you listen to the Jodcast? <laughs> well, I used to listen to it quite frequently. I've been a bit busy recently, but I'm going to tune in again after this interview and I'm looking forward to hearing all these fantastic stories that you guys tell. Very flattering. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. Minnie, thank you for that. Now, Max interviews Dr. Christina Romero-Canazales about allergies. Hello, I'm Max Potter for the Jodcast, and I'm joined by Christina Romero-Canazales, who's studying at Manchester this week, visiting from Chile. 
and you've been part of the the Lurgy effort, which is a an e-Merlin legacy project. Could you tell us a little bit about what Lurgy stands for and 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 what it does? Yes, sure. Uh, so hi, uh, Lurgy. It's a, a luminous infrared galaxy inventory. Um, so effectively, it's a sample of uh, galaxies uh, that will be observed or are already being observed with e-Merlin. And the purpose is to to understand the mechanisms that drive the very high star formation in these systems, to get yeah an idea of the, the physics that is going on there. Because in these systems, which are very dusty, radio gives us a very direct view of what's going on in the centers of, of these galaxies. And what's going on, it's uh, supernovae, supernova remnants, and also activity from, from an active uh, galactic nucleus. All this in a very violent environment where you have lots of gas flowing in and and you have starburst. Okay, cool. So what is it about ultra-luminous infrared galaxies that makes them such interesting locations? If you think of, of our galaxy, our galaxy is producing stars, lots of stars. But then if you think of the most massive stars which end up their lives as supernovae, we can have one of those every 50 or 100 years. Whereas in those galaxies, you would have one of uh, such events once per year. Wow, okay. So Not so, somewhere you want to live then. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, the, the star formation is, uh, is bursting there. Right. Really. So what causes that kind of much greater star formation than we see in our galaxy? Okay, so, so one reason is that uh, these, these systems, which are very luminous in the infrared, as the name says, is that most of them are, have been found to be in mergers. So when you have uh, two galaxies, gas-rich galaxies, which are merging, uh, you have all the gas of them flowing towards the central regions. And that produces all this compression of gas, produces a lot of uh, star formation, specifically of massive stars. So then you have lots of uh, supernovae and also AGN activity. Okay. So which area of, of Lurgy have you been working on? So at the beginning, it's been only data reduction of the few sources that have been observed. And so we, four years ago, we analyzed uh, the data of the first, of first uh, galaxy that was observed uh, and we published it. So what we found was that uh, this galaxy, which is uh, very active in star formation, also has a, an AGN, which when you see in optical, you, you cannot really see the two components directly. But with radio, you, you can map them and you can distinguish between them by looking at their variations or also the, the spectral behavior. So we found this this candidate for a, for an active galactic nucleus and and more recent observations that we later combined with the European BLBI network show us that this uh, AGN, it's uh, actually a critting material and and it's uh, having a, a jet structure, okay. which is it's very interesting because it tells us that at the same time that we have the very strong star formation, we also have some accretion into this uh, black hole. Right. And I take it that's not a common result. You, you don't expect to find that. And you would expect, but the problem is that we are lacking uh, high-resolution observations. And some other galaxies which have very detailed observations, people have only managed to map the star formation activity. 
in the form of supernovae and supernova remnants. Whereas having both, it's it's unique, quite unique. Mm. It's only very few systems. Right. Oh, that's cool. Uh, so how many galaxies are, are, are you looking at with Logi? Uh, so the total sample is 42 mm -hmm. galaxies, but at the moment there have been only six of them observed or so. Okay. Something like that. So there's yeah. still a lot to come then. Yes. Right. Oh, great. But also, also the thing is that uh, because these galaxies have uh, lots of gas, uh, we are also interested in in looking at the, the dynamics of the of the gas. So we need to observe uh, the lines, uh, for example, the neutral hydrogen. What is what is this doing? Which is the best tracer of the of the flow of the gas? Uh, this is really just starting. We we are just getting data uh, in line mode and and still needs to be analyzed. So, so the data that we published four years ago, it was only continuum, right? But okay. the line data it still needs lots of uh, mm -hmm. of work. So, line data—that's you're talking about spectroscopy. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, cool. Um, so, what kind of things are you looking for in the gas dynamics? What What are you expecting to find, or what might surprise you if you do find it? Uh, for example, the feedback of of the different processes that are going on there. Uh, well, I, I have Galaxy, but this is just a, as an example. It's not part of Lirgi, but something that we can expect to find is that sometimes the, the feedback from, from the supernova uh, or the, the formation of the stars or even the, the AGN is so powerful that it's emptying or de depleting the gas in the central parts of the, of the galaxy. So you have competing processes for mm. forming stars, but then also if the gas is being depleted, then you end up with no gas, so you cannot form more stars. <laughs> and you have to see which of these competing processes is, is leading and which one of these is actually hitting the gas uh, or giving the leading the, the, lyric, the lyric phenomena in, in each one of these uh, galaxies. Okay. So that you talked about the there was a jet um, from this active galactic nuclei that you found, mm -hmm. mini mini jet, a mini jet. Yes. Okay. How was it small? How was it small? It was very small, so in the order of a few parsecs. Oh, okay. So normally, when you have very powerful AGNs, mm -hmm. uh, you expect these jets to be of the order of kiloparsecs. But this structure we found it's it's very very small. Right. Mm. And and what we have inferred from the observations is that uh, the AGN itself is very young, so there is this uh, global picture of of what Lyrgs are doing. That at the beginning, the merger stage, you have a very strong star formation, and as time passes, the star formation will decline, and you will have higher activity from the AGN. Okay. That's like the global uh, picture. Right. So this this case is really nice because you have the two components, mm. but then of course the the AGN is is very young and it's it's secreting material, but at a low level. Mm. So you would expect and as as time goes on, it it's... will become more powerful. Right, yeah. right. So the like star formation rate will, will tend decline. to decline as the accretion rate will tend to increase, and then you'll get a stronger jet, presumably. Yeah, that's that's okay. one possibility. Yes. Right. What are the other possibilities? <laughs> You could also have other systems that it, it depends how how were the galaxies that were merging first. Mm. It really depends on that. You could have uh, other systems where the the AGN is stronger than the than the star formation, 
and and really this is this is just a, a view but but we need to observe really this each one of these galaxies in different stages to see really what's going on mm. because all this uh, it's either th theoretical work or also coming from optical spectroscopy where you cannot really see what's going on in the central regions because you are obscured by by all the dust right so so you really need to to have radio at high resolution and to directly detect uh, the components in the inner regions okay so i take it this is this is all new new science we haven't got a catalog of these observed in radio previously uh, of any sort no no that's okay. why yeah we we have this this legacy mm -hmm. uh, program right cool so there are no there are no previous observations mm -hmm. at, at high resolution on these galaxies yeah and and these galaxies are drawn from a much bigger sample there are uh, galaxies that are being observed with the with another program uh, that it's called Great Observatory All Sky Survey uh, from NASA telescopes. So, so at the end, uh, these observations will also be a complement for observations made with Spitzer, Hubble, Chandra. So, so it's really good to have an overall view mm. at the different wavelengths uh, on individual objects to to really know what they are doing. Yeah, what's happening? In yeah, them. definitely. Yeah, so you can sort of, if you've got these optical observations and you've got questions about what's going on, you can then look at the radio and 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 see, unobscured by dust, what, what what's happening yeah. inside these galaxies. And that's really interesting. So, how did you choose the the sample that you were going to observe of these galaxies? Uh, well, one thing has to do with the declination, right? Because with Emerlin, we can only observe uh, northern sources. Yeah. So that was one thing, and the other one was to choose galaxies which were not observed before with uh, at very high resolution so that you wouldn't have competing programs mm -hmm. for example with a, a very large array or so right yeah and there must be others that i don't remember <laughs> fair enough so i was looking through the lurgy um proposal and there was one sentence that i really liked which was that you were going to um discover something about phenomenological sequence and time scale of nuclear starbursts it's a very nice sentence i just wondered <laughs> what what those words mean yeah it's 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 related to what i was telling before mm -hmm. that that you expect the mergers to evolve in such a way that at the beginning the the energetics of each system will be dominated by by star formation mm -hmm. and later on for uh, by a um, active galactic nucleus uh, this is what what is expected fair enough yeah that's cool. So another thing that the proposal mentioned was you were interested in constraining the magnetic field parameters. As a plasma physicist, I'm quite interested in, in magnetic fields. What what have you have you found out about, about that so far? So far, nothing really, <laughs> because okay. we have very few data. Yeah. But for one of the targets that we uh, followed with uh, with the old uh, Merlin array and also with the European BLBI network. Well, we could, uh, we didn't observe polarization yet, but there is a way to, to obtain the, the strength of the magnetic field. Mm. And, and the only thing we could tell at that point was that it has a magnetic field, which corresponds to, to do, that observed in other advanced mergers, which was fitting the, the scenario. But more I cannot tell because I think the polarization 
observations are are really in the first steps. Fair so. enough. Well, that's something to look forward to then. So what's the sort of future of the program? Where are you hoping to, to go with it? And, and what would be the next sort of observational stage? We would need first to complete the sample. And then, of course, now we only have observations at one in one band. We need observations in two bands, at least, to, to characterize mm. uh, the emission. And then also get the line line emission. And then I guess when that's done, we have to to see what information the other telescopes are, are giving us to, to build a, an overall view. Yeah. So are there any um, upcoming telescope projects that will be seeing light soon that you're interested in results from or would complement what you're doing? I think uh, from the goals sample, I think they have been observed already with Chandra and Spitzer okay. and so on. So, right. Fair enough. So that information is already available. Mm. Oh, that's yeah. cool. But there is also, uh, from so from the Lirgi uh, sample, there is a subsample that, that's been observed with the European BLBI network that gives us even higher resolution at the level of milliard seconds. Okay. So that's also really good because we can see details that are lost uh, when we look at uh, the data with Imerlin. But then with the Merlin, because we have a, a bit lower resolution, we are more, more sensitive to larger structure. For example, diffuse gas. When you see diffuse gas, you can think of uh, different things. One is all the emission from that has just gone out through the through the galaxy. So it's old electrons that were at some point accelerated by by supernova mm. event or supernova remnant or or even the AGN. Okay, nice. So, is there anything else you're working on outside of uh, outside of Lurgy? Uh, yes. So, so this this is just uh, one uh, project I'm involved, but mm-hmm. I also have other projects with uh, mostly with uh, European BLBI network. So, at the moment, we are observing a tidal disruption event. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's uh-huh. when there's a star that passes too close to a black hole, and then it gets disrupted. So, so. Part of its um, envelope, it's accreted by the black hole very fast, and this produces a flare of emission okay. through all the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. So we are studying one one of these events. Oh, that sounds that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's really cool, and and the cool thing is also that this is related also to to mergers because mm. in galaxies which are uh, post starbursts, which are thought to come from uh, merger activity in the past, like our LIRGs, mm-hmm. in, in those galaxies you have uh, higher chances to, to detect uh, these events. That so nice. it's all connected. It's come full circle. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time, Christina. It's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks to you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for that, Max. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all of those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So... You may or may not be aware that within the last couple of years there was an application put in by a building firm to build 119 houses not too far from the Jodrell Bank site. The developers wanted to build these homes, they, they sought advice about the telescope and it was declared that there wouldn't be any problems with building next to the telescope, that the radio interference was not going to be enough to cause a real problem with the observations uh, that we do at Jodrell Bank. So. The uh, the developers came up against a lot of objections, not only from the observatory itself, but also from the local people. The v- village of Goostree, where Jodrell Bank is based, cares, I think, a lot about Jodrell Bank being nearby. 
And so the developers came up against some obstacles, notably that there is a great big radio telescope there and 119 homes is likely to impair the quality of, of the observations. I mean, that's possibly 119 microwave ovens all emitting... I mean, oh, I'll get loads of FLBs. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's face it, it would, it would definitely impair the quality of the yeah. observations. There's at no least, way that it wouldn't have at an At least effect. 119 new mobile phones in the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roughly, you could say maybe 50% of those people will have petrol cars, and so spark plugs from those cars will cause radio emission. Exactly. L-band is already so saturated. Yeah. I mean, L-band itself is protected. It's a protected band, but the band width of L-band is is very narrow, and so Mm -hmm. only a small bit of it's narrow. We observe at L-band, but over a much wider bandwidth. So we spill over into the bits that are not protected. Yeah. And, of course, you know, you've also got possibly up to 119 families with Wi-Fi. And so it's obviously going to cause problems. And and Um, on that basis, it was initially rejected. The developers, Gladmans, then appealed that ruling, stating that there would be no detriment to the observatory based on the radio emission. What do Gladmans know? Are they radio astronomers? Do they hire a consultant or something? Uh, Apparently there was an independent consultant. I Mm. I have no idea who that was. Hmm. But um, it went to um, a second hearing where everybody had a chance to put forward their views and it was just basically dismissed. The appeal was dismissed almost immediately. Um, and the, the quote was that Jodrell Bank Observatory, as an established world-class facility, should be afforded reasonable protection. The protection of Jodrell Bank Observatory as a facility of international importance transcends the housing land supply circumstances of the case. And this is a really good thing, right? Because, yeah, I mean, because it shows radio... you know, that government still cares they about... Care, you know. Yeah. One thing the UK does well is radio astronomy. Yeah. We're an international centre for radio astronomy and, yeah. you know, we've got us and we've got Mullard at Cambridge leading that and I think it's really important to Absolutely. preserve Absolutely. And, I mean, historically, like, so I'm writing my thesis at the moment, which is a <laughs> tremendous fun. Um, but uh, what the section I wrote today was the history of radio astronomy section, which is actually mm. really interesting. But, like, I mean, UK observatories, like the Lovell Telescope and General Bank and Mullard were pioneering mm. in terms terms of radio interferometry and radio astronomy technology yeah. and you know just historically speaking if nothing else they're of huge significance and just the fact that that is still happening today mm. is really wonderful and you know because the university I came from has an observatory which yeah. was built like in the 1800s and now it's completely unusable because like the whole city was built up around it and there's too much light pollution and mm. you know it just kind of can't happen there anymore um so i think you know it's really amazing that the uk is so interested in preserving these sites so that not only are, are they of historical significance but they're still actually usable yeah i think the long, as long as that continues that's uh that's really cool well let's hope that that status quo is maintained yeah, yeah and that we don't end up with a government that cares you know not about science at all and this is a problem saying, uh, yeah. In other countries at the moment, there are there are other well, Arecibo and Green Bank, for example, oh, are under God. under threat. Let's say yeah. from lack of funding. It's so it's heartbreaking. It's, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine if Arecibo, Green Bank, and then the double telescope all went down at once? Yeah, I mean, a few years the ago, there was danger that, exactly. that Jodrell Bank would be closed. We 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 came across similar problems to yeah. to Green Bank and Pax have been in the same position a few times. Mm-hmm. In all cases, have been right. rescued. I think the VLBA is um, like I don't fully know the facts of the situation, but I think either their funding is threatened or now completely non-existent. Mm. And like the VLBA is a fantastic instrument. I did my master's with the VLBA. Um, it's really useful and it's just really sad that it, that it wouldn't be used anymore. And like why those telescopes are just going to gather dust if yeah. someone doesn't use them and they're capable of producing amazing results. 
mean, some some people, if, you, if you're local to Goostra, you may have seen recently that we had Lovell pointed directly at you. For some time, we were monitoring the, the baseline radio frequency interference from the village and, and just seeing what it was like and how bad it was likely to get based on an additional 119 houses, based on the mm. number of houses that are already in Goostry. And, it, you know, it was we could see mobile phone signals. We could see okay. all of this stuff. There we go. So, so there's and, actually you know, data. There's there is, data, there is to data to support the this fact that this is a bad idea. Yeah, that was likely instrumental in the, in the immediate dismissal of this appeal. But I looked through... Goostry Council sort of planning website. There's a lot of people that are trying to build houses around that area, and they're consistently rejected mm. on the basis of Jodrell Bank being nearby. And it is a shame, actually, that we're not a little bit more like Green Bank. Green Bank in this way, yeah. which has a which is in a inter, which is in a national radio quiet zone. Yeah. You're not allowed a mobile phone there. You're not allowed Wi-Fi there. There's a ranger that goes around in a van looking for a diesel van. A diesel van looking for <laughs> radio <laughs> yes. frequency interference. Um, and a, a good radius around the Green Bank Observatory is protected from yeah. from radio and, waves. I mean, I've read a lot of stuff about that because it's mm. really interesting. And like the, the citizens of Green Bank and that, that neck of the woods, they they love it. They say, you know, it's a fantastic place to live. We like how quiet it is. It's really yeah. cool. Um, we like that you know the government are giving this kind of protection to um, mm. to scientific research. But it's good to know that you know if big developments like this come along and have the potential to impede our science that so far the decision has been on our side and you know long may that continue because yeah. you know we're already looking at very weak sources we need we need a good strong signal to noise ratio in order to see half the things we're looking for oh dear god yes um, <laughs> i mean there's no surprise that you can see a mobile phone in yeah. goostree when yeah. when you drive into children bank it says you can see a, a mobile phone on mars if you're pointing at mars yeah absolutely <laughs> so, in the absence yeah. of all of the noise sources but i mean we you know we still have pro- we have a visitor center there and we can't we can't completely radio silence everybody that comes onto the site some people don't switch their mobile phones we can see that some people come in with a petrol car so when they start it up to leave we see a spike because of the spark plugs and also we are contributors to the rfi as well right there's a fantastic story um from when myself and ben were first first year phds and we were sitting around jodrell bank and andrew line who has been on jodcast before and is a long long-term user of the level telescope for pulsar yeah, science been around forever and they just built the university around him I'm, I'm, he might have discovered every part well not quite every part obviously because <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, obviously Justin Bell discovered the first part mm. um, but he had been doing some research because he'd found some RFI on site and it turned out that a piece of equipment in the observatory had been malfunctioning and had mm-hmm. been sparking producing radio waves and he could actually triangulate and work out exactly where that was just using the level telescope and some other equipment as well so, yeah it was one of the floodlights on the edge of the site that mm. was um, flickering on and off and he showed he showed us these great maps and he'd, he'd actually drawn it out with pencils yeah he'd map. sat there at the controls of level triangulating this thing <laughs> oh and found goodness. exactly which lamp it was that was causing a problem mm. and went over took the bulb out and the rfi went away so for now the rfi situation at jodrell bank will stay the same Long may that continue, I guess. Yeah, um, absolutely. So to completely change the subject um, from what Ben has been talking about, my odd end is more seasonal. So I'm going to be talking about how astronauts spend Christmas in space. So it seems that institutes like NASA and others don't worry too much about Christmas Day when they're shooting you into space and that it happens that some astronauts do actually spend Christmas Day in space, I would have thought. That would be a holiday. And as it happens, it is still a holiday when you're in space. Um, Do they get double pay? Oh, I don't know. 
I don't know. So yeah, I know time they back, time back in Lou yeah, when you get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know they get time like they get the day off. I mean, if you can have a day off in space, would you not still be worried all the time about the spaceship running properly and the oxygen not running out? And uh, how, how, bad that, can, that, how bad can things get in one day? Well, you know, the thing that turns your pee into drinkable water could stop turning your pee into drinkable water. and then You can survive a day without water. You'd have to drink your own pee, though. Or drink nothing at all. Or drink... Or drink whiskey. Or drink whiskey. No, no one will get to that. Um, because so, whiskey made in space, as we have talked about before. There is whiskey made in space, like but you mustn't drink sulfur. it. You mustn't drink it in space, and I'm going to explain why. So, but let me go back to the start. So the first, the first time anyone ever spent Christmas in space was um, was the Apollo Eight mission, where Jim Lovell and his associates Borman and Anders, so Jim Lovell, also known as Tom Hanks, were uh, were up in space orbiting the moon, and nobody really knew what they should do. So it was Christmas Eve, and it was felt that they should give some kind of announcement or some kind of broadcast. And it was at a time when broadcasts from space weren't even really a thing. And, and, and their directive from NASA was just do something appropriate. So they read from the Bible because it seemed that that would be the most appropriate thing they could do. So they read they read from Genesis. And, and it made me think then, like, that seems appropriate because it was the first time. So they were seeing the Earth from space and it was the first time a human had seen that. It must have been for them and for a lot of people listening, a pretty powerful moment. You know, whatever your what it, whatever your spiritual inclination is, you know, um, if you're in space and you're looking down at the Earth, I mean, only very few people have ever done that. It must it. And there are often allusions to the Earth as, like, the cradle of life. Astronauts yeah. often come back and say they look down at the Earth and they realise how precious it was. Yeah, and how... exactly. It's a pretty unique experience and, mm. and I can imagine a pretty powerful one to, to go away from the Earth and then to look back down at it and see it in its entirety. So so anyway, so that's what they did. Um, they were told to do something appropriate. They read from the Bible. Unfortunately, a lot of... Well, some did they people... have fights with the family? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is the Christmas tradition. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, so not everyone thought it was appropriate, and notably that NASA were sued by an atheist who said uh, they shouldn't have been using um, religious texts in something that was government sponsored. Uh, but the case was thrown out, and the reason they were sued they were sued by an atheist um, who said that they shouldn't have been using religious texts in something that was government sponsored. I think there are laws. Oh, we should have George here for this. I think there are laws George to do with separation of religion and state. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm not sure. The case, about them. the case was thrown out because it was ruled that the court had no jurisdiction over the lunar orbit. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's fair enough. Fair right. enough. Well, I mean, there are also laws saying that nobody owns space, right? Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, and you get. Wasn't there some? company who was selling off like patches of land on the moon and you could buy some like do you remember that spanish woman a while back who said she owned the sun uh, and she was trying to charge everybody for the <laughs> radiation from it no <laughs> i don't <laughs> what is this did she go and plant a flag on the sun no but she just claimed that she can <laughs> just claim ownership of the sun and then because and then no one else charge people that. accordingly for for the if you know the equivalent of a power bill how did she how did that go for her it didn't go very well she she was a bit of a laughing stock but you know and it, she she tried to legally claim that the sun was hers and that by using solar radiation for whatever reason we owed her money but it was made clear to her that you don't own the sun and good luck 
collecting the money. <laughs> That's entrepreneurism on astronomical proportions. It Isn't it just? Is. Um, so, so after they recorded their Bible message and after they finished orbiting the moon, Lovell, Borman and Anders returned to Earth and the first message that they sent in, so everyone was really worried that like the spacecraft would burn up on re-entry, and the first message they sent in when they arrived was... Um, Roger, please be informed that there is a Santa Claus. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? Isn't that adorable? I think that's lovely. So anyway, so so that was then. Now, so now, as you know, um, the International Space Station is up there and um, that's populated by international astronauts from different countries with different beliefs and different traditions. Um, so now, um, it actually is not fixed what day they celebrate Christmas on because <laughs> anyone from the States or from the UK will celebrate it on the 25th of December, but... Anyone up there who is from the Russian Orthodox Church might celebrate it on the 6th or the 7th of the 19th of January because they uh, observe the Julian calendar and not the Gregorian calendar. Mm. Also, what constitutes a day in the space station? Because obviously it's orbiting around the Earth. Yeah, yeah you get an hour and a half to celebrate Christmas. That's yeah. a really good question. Uh, is it a day and then it's night and then it's day and then oh, it's I night? I don't know. Or is it just... And how do they even mark like the date? Is it based on where they're communicating with on Earth, perhaps? Presumably it's Houston time. Yeah, I yeah, I guess so. I guess so. That's interesting. But anyway, up at the ISS, uh, they get the day off. They get the day off because it's a federal holiday, so they're allowed to do whatever they want. Except, presumably, they can't um, go down to the pub or they can't put a turkey in the oven. <laughs> uh, what they can do, they have... Um, so I was reading about their Christmas meal and uh, the word reconstituted was used a lot of times. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> so that's a good start. Turkey and reconstituted vegetables and potatoes. But apparently it's quite bland and they often end up opting for other options. I think one of them had the tortellini and he said that was quite nice. Um, they do have a stash of Christmas decorations on the ISS, which they dig out every year. And they said, as much as it is on Earth, uh, it's a real struggle to find them when they're on the ISS. <laughs> They've got a box somewhere with a flame-proof Christmas tree and some bubbles. <laughs> Um, but they, like, I mean, Christmas trees <laughs> shed a lot of debris, even the plastic ones. I know, it must be a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, I just have this vision. Is it like some kind of NASA-engineered Christmas tree and do, that do doesn't they, shed? And if so, why don't we all have one? <laughs> do they tie it down or is it just floating around? So I don't know about the tree, but I do know for their Christmas dinner table, the table has Velcro on it to stop all the Brussels sprouts from floating off around the ISS. <laughs> That'd be quite a fun game, wouldn't it? You let the Brussels sprouts go and it's like apple Let bobbing. them float into space and then you don't have to eat them. I'm not a fan of sprouts, then. Oh, sprouts are disgusting. Sprouts I'm a very big fan of sprouts. Like Charlie, what? No, what's wrong with you? I don't understand people who like sprouts. Why? Why? Because it's Christmas. Because they're, but they're disgusting. But it's Christmas. So I eat the parsnips and I eat the stuffing and I eat the other stuff. But you're making it sound like a trial or a challenge. It's tasty. The Nuts best thing sprouts. about the, the best thing about the sprouts is when you mash them up and have them in a, a bubble and squeak the next day. Ew! Oh no, that's disgusting. The best part of Christmas no. dinner is the leftovers the next no. day. Well, that that's true. I can I can get behind that, but not sprouts. Not sp- no, not sprouts. We throw those in the bin. We make them because my father insists. <laughs> well, that's a huge waste, isn't it? <laughs> Does anybody eat them or just buy them, cook them and then just discard them all? <laughs> my dad eats them. To be fair, my father eats most of them. Um, but me and my mother don't like them. Do you um, take turns to throw them at him into his mouth? Like, oh, we should do that. That would be fun. He would be up for that. 
Um, but but so they can have they can have reconstituted vegetables. They can't have anything crumbly because obviously anything crumbly is gonna like break apart and clog all the ventilation. So that means no mince pies. That means no mince pies. So what did they feed Santa when they met him on the space station that first time? Well, I don't know about what they fed him. I do know that there was one year on the ISS where they all found Christmas stockings outside their doors. Uh, I'll post a link to the BBC article where I'm sourcing most of this information from. And they, they don't know where those Christmas stockings came from. Uh, That's quite creepy. Isn't it? Can you imagine waking up? It's, it's it's like you're in space and you wake up and something's outside your door and you don't know who left it there. And, and you know who everyone else is on the ship and you, you're hoping nobody arrived on the ship while you were asleep. <laughs> It is a bit sort of alien. It is a bit alien. It is a bit alien. It could be the start of like a really good sci-fi Christmas film. Yeah, on the channel, (laughs) sci-fi. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, we should should do it. We should do like a Jodcast sci-fi movie. Panto next year. Yeah, 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 Yeah. absolutely. But anyway, so so yeah, they can't have mince pies and they also can't have alcohol. And not just because they would be too drunk to fly the spaceship, um, but also because if they drink the alcohol up in space, they have a limited supply of water and they have processing systems to turn like their urine and their sweat and other bodily fluids. Hopefully just those two. Just those two. (laughs) Hopefully Mm. just those two. Um, Into water. And if they drink alcohol, the alcohol in their systems would completely knock out the water reprocessing machine. So so they can't have any alcohol up there wow. at all because it would destroy that equipment. Uh, or Well, I mean, I guess they can have alcohol, but they can't consume alcohol because it would, it would completely wreck all of, all of that equipment. It's not, it's not designed to deal with that. Maybe it can be that sensitive. That's, yeah, that's I know. Surprising. I know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it just goes to show the effect that that alcohol has in your body uh, so anyway so that's that's Christmas in space I'd, I would forgo the good food and the alcohol to spend Christmas looking down at the earth wouldn't that be lovely yeah I think that would be really nice I'd I be just well. drunk on the view yeah, to be honest absolutely, so, yeah absolutely and I mean I mean it comes back to like whatever your religious persuasion I think it must be a pretty moving experience to, to see the earth from not on the earth Mm. none of us know what that's like um, and that must be amazing yeah that must make you it's really change your perspective yeah absolutely I think absolutely. it does I think I think it has for all of them you must yeah. come back a complete a noticeably different person yeah. from when you went up yeah absolutely so Jodcast in space seems to be the, the conclusion here we should uh, we should go into space and report back if we could go up and record an, an interview Jodcast in the field we should start doing field interviews I, so, I wonder how much it would cost to just to take the recorder up alone not <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> mind the three of us so and Richard Branson if you're listening yeah yeah um, if you can fit us on one of your I'm sure he would I'm sure well I'm not but you know we can try, we can ask for nothing mm. can't we yeah exactly it'd be a great Christmas present and talking of Christmas presents, and actually maybe this is the answer to how um, your astronauts got their Christmas stockings that one year. I have also been looking at Christmas in space, and I have been looking about how astronauts get their Christmas presents. So actually, what would you ask for if you're an astronaut? We've already said that it's such an amazing experience. What else would you want? What do you think you'd want? Well, I want a pony and a baby doll. <laughs> <They've>, <laughs> and in a space. Castle. How much would you oh. to launch a pony? Oh my God, can you imagine a Bunsy castle in space? <laughs> 
I can imagine one. I'm not pointless, sure it's feasible. Really. <laughs> it's a bit pointless. I guess I, so. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think if I was in space, I'd probably want some half decent food. Yeah, which is probably like that probably wouldn't be possible. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be the thing I would miss the most about being up in space. Yeah. I might also want a hard drive with all my favorite sitcoms. Yes, that would be good. I often wonder. So this year, I've asked of my mother for some nice hand cream because the cold weather dries my skin out. Mm. Uh, I often wonder what effect being in space would have on like just your physical well-being. Just these little things that a doctor probably wouldn't be too concerned about, but that would cause you maybe some discomfort. So you know, even when you it go on an airplane, changes the sort of rigidity of your spine. I think exactly you know, bone density to the downward pressure. Yeah, muscle just, loss is a problem. That's why they have to exercise yeah, so much. And I day. just love to know what effect it has on your skin because yeah. dry skin can be really uncomfortable and, and itchy and unpleasant. Mm. And I know when you go on an airplane, I guess it can be problematic for a long haul flight. I wonder what it's like in space when you just it's, it's recycled air completely recycled, recycled air yeah. all the time. How do they take care of themselves? Um, so so yeah, on Earth I'm asking for some hand cream. I wonder what the equivalent in space would be um, for that. So what they actually had delivered to them were five tons of food, water, lithium-ion batteries, and other supplies. Oh, I love me some lithium-ion batteries now. <laughs> that's 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 also on my Christmas list. Some lithium lithium-ion batteries and some hand cream and a chocolate orange. <laughs> I mean, they come in handy all the time, don't they? And nothing crumbly there. So nothing that's crumbly. That's good. That's um, good. There were some Christmas presents as well. Which were wrapped, and I don't know oh. what they contained, but that was nice. And they were they were um, launched up by a Japanese cargo ship named after a bird that often carries gifts. The stork. The stork. Go. Yeah. It was called the Kunatori, or the White Stork. And this White Stork was captured by the station's robotic arm at five thirty-seven a.m. EST on December the thirteenth. So they haven't been delayed by the postal strikes in the way that we're That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so they've still got to wait till Christmas Day to open. They've got them, but they don't they're know. Not allowed I'm guessing them. they're allowed to use the water before then. Probably. One would hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So Merry Christmas, guys, in the International Space Station. Yeah. yeah, if you're listening, they should listen to us in the International Space Station. I'm sure it would be highly entertaining for them to hear all the nonsense that we say about them. And the assumptions we make about their lives in space. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, um, I saw... Yeah, John Glenn passed away. Um, so that's sad. And, um, yeah, um, Pamela Gay, who is one of the people on Astronomy Cast, tweeted with a, a story about him saying that she was doing a talk at a conference very early on in her career and she was absolutely terrified. Um, and everyone else was coming up with plots and graphs and... Mm technical stuff and she came on and just described how some particular piece of research actually made her feel and she felt like she felt like such a sort of she felt like she wasn't really contributing properly because everyone else was coming along with sort of technical stuff um and afterwards john glenn came up to her and said your talk was how talk should be that was that was really good and that oh my then inspired her to go on and and do more actual science communication because what? he told her he told her that story. she she actually had a voice and she should use yeah. it and that's exactly what she's done. That's yeah. quite an astronomy cast. So yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's amazing. That's lovely so. and, and true. I think mm. you know. I feel um, I go to lots of conferences. I feel like it would be a lot better if people instead of presenting actually spoke. You know, yes. if we if we as because it's hard it's harder I would say to do that actually. yeah absolutely it's often um, the case when you present in research at a conference that you you kind of talk as if you, 
your audience already knows what you've done and how it works. Yeah, exactly. And your audience doesn't always know, and a, a lot more background and a lot more motivation behind yeah. it would really help. And an interesting thing at the PhD level as well, when often when we give talks, I, I've only just sort of come to the conclusion that the way we should talk about them is as a, this is what I'm doing, this is how I'm doing it, I'm presenting it to you, who are far more expert in the field yeah. than I am. Am I doing it right? Do you have any suggestions to help yeah. me? It shouldn't yeah. just be to impress people with exactly. what you've done. It should no. be in order to collaborate with and it, And you else. invite discussion and suggestion. Mm. And so, so I mean, that's what I've been trying to do the yeah. last few times I've stood up and talked to people. And, I mean, it's daunting because, you it's know... terrifying. You're getting you... up there and you're like... I mean, I've, I've shown people things that were very much works in progress. Mm. I was like, you know, there's this expectation, especially at conferences, because you kind of have to publish a little paper then. You know, they have conference proceedings mm. which get published and there's this pressure, I think, to kind of have everything finished and that everything you show them is something which is done and which yeah, that and there can, can be no justify possible every single yeah, error bar and, and that there can be no possible input from anyone in that that it's yeah. finished and that there's no need for anyone else to comment whereas actually I think it's much nicer if you stand up there and say well I'm working on this I'm doing it it's a bit hard here's the results I've got so far here are the thoughts I've had about it so far and you know that it's open ended yeah um, I, I really feel like i mean apart from outreach that just science communication in general could just use a bit of a revolution that it should be different to how it is and that we shouldn't um do it the way we do necessarily or we shouldn't feel like we have to do it yeah the way we think we need everyone to do it. should be aware who's listening and, and who's talking that it's iterative yeah yeah and you don't have to get it right Exactly, you know, and that it doesn't have it doesn't have to be a presentation. It can be a discussion. Yeah, exactly. It would be really interesting to see what these sorts of conferences were like, for example, before the internet existed, back before yeah. back when the conferences were when everyone got together and saw each other's science. Because I imagine that's what right. they were to begin with. And now, exactly. now you see the science anyway, so you go exactly. in and say, and I feel like, but thing. the conferences aren't changing in accordance with that. They're they're kind of, I feel like it's still very much in the format of I'm presenting new results and this is new and these are results. But perhaps that's not what's needed now from a gathering of scientists. Or maybe there's space for both. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, because I think mostly people, like, it's acknowledged that mostly the reason you go to these is to network. Uh, right and to you know to not so much to show people what you've done as to just make people aware of you as a person yeah. um, I mean it's absolutely essential for people to network because otherwise you end up reinventing the wheel in every university yeah, exactly. all over the world it's incredibly important that people and especially work like internationally so you know when there are language barriers like you can go to a co conference in a foreign country and realise that there's been a whole group over there in this different country working on something very similar to what you've worked on but it's just you haven't seen the papers and they haven't seen yours and you haven't communicated because you haven't been publishing in the same language and I mean mostly mostly now it's done in English mm. um, but there are there are examples and alternatives as well yeah exactly and so I guess that was a bit of a tangent about conferences and what it's like to go to them all of which came from our conversation about John Glenn all mm. of which came from our conversation about Christmas in space yeah yes. and about Christmas presents and I think you'll be getting a lump of coal for Christmas for this tangent I will not it was a very good tangent <laughs> so so on to on to some people who won't be getting lumps of coal for Christmas because they're so good at answering your questions we have George and Minnie <laughs> and Ben uh, with Ask an Astronomer oh, yes. 
So, can you tell uh, me what your name is? I'm June. June? Yeah, June. Hi, June. My name's Minnie. Um, and can you ask your question for us, please? What is a radio galaxy? That's the big question I've been waiting for all day. I study radio galaxies. So you're familiar with what a galaxy is. When you think of a galaxy, you think of something pretty and spirally. I wish we had some examples. But like you think of something that looks like the Milky Way, or you think of something that looks like a ball of stars. And so that's what we see at optical light. It's what we're used to seeing. That's infrared. Um, yes, dear. But that's you're, you're jumping by my point. When you picture a galaxy, you picture it kind of in the optical, what our eyes are used to seeing, something like the Hubble telescope, those beautiful images. Radio galaxy is something that emits radiation at the radio part of the electromagnetic wave, um, electromagnetic spectrum. So optical waves are like light waves that are about oh, a couple of hundred um, uh, to, a, a couple, to about a thousand nanometers, right? And so really, really small waves. That's how I, our eyes can see lots and lots and lots of optical waves. Radio waves vary from about a millimeter to a few meters, right? This is why radio telescopes have to be so big. And these low energies probe a lot of things like star formation. We can probe the presence of black holes. We can probe um, very compact objects. We can probe diffuse emission in the universe. Radio um, emission probes all sorts of things in the universe. For radio galaxies, any galaxy that emits radio emission, and usually when we talk about radio galaxies, we're talking about the radio emission coming from a big black hole in the middle of a big elliptical galaxy. So we're talking black holes that are like 100 million times the mass of the sun sitting in the middle of a galaxy, blasting out radio jets that are often hundreds of light years across, like uh, hundreds of light years in diameter, really big plumes of emission. And that's, a, that's what I call a radio galaxy. And I'm just going to give a plug here. If you're interested, you should go and Google Radio Galaxy Zoo, which is a citizen scientist project where we go ask citizen scientists like yourself to classify radio galaxies. Did you have any other questions, or was that clear? I want to know what do astronomers do all day. <laughs> do you want me to answer that, or shall you? Yeah, we can, we can. Go for it. Um, I don't know about you, me, but the first thing I do every morning is make a coffee. <laughs> Cup of tea. Yeah. Um, so, a day in your life, what would you say is? A lot of it. There's very little actually staring through a telescope, unfortunately. On a good day, I might go to an observatory and use radio data, but most of the time, I am either doing maths, writing programs, or writing papers. So, most of my day is spent in front of a computer. It's a lot of fun, though. It is a lot of fun, and yeah, we, it is very much a desk job rather than sitting behind a telescope, I think. So when I get in, the first thing I do, I study pulsars. So I'm sorry. The, the, a lot of pulsar prejudice around. Um, so the first thing I do when I get in after I've made my coffee is I look at what we observed with the Hubble telescope um, the night before, and I go through each of those observations and see if anything interesting has happened with any of those pulsars. Um, once I've done that, I get on with writing programs, reducing data, writing a paper, um, so a lot of it is just doing stuff on a computer with data that somebody else has already taken for us. <laughs> I do think one of the best parts of being an astronomer is we're doing what we love and hanging out with people we really enjoy hanging out with, talking about what we love. So a lot of science is very collaborative. I mean, I've kind of given you the jury desk job side of things. I'm Myself, I'm an observational astronomer, so I do actually spend a fair bit of time out at telescopes. And on those days, my life is just so great. If I'm observing an optical, I start my day by getting up, having dinner, because I'm observing at night, 
and then I go out, watch the sunset, and then I spend the night, you know, looking oh, through a massive cool. telescope. But that happens maybe a few nights a year, if that. So those are the really good nights. They're the days I look for, or the nights. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for being on our show. So this question comes from Alexander. Thanks for that, Alexander. So, Comet Halley was last seen in the skies in 1986. I suspect that was well before uh, Alexander was born. I was born, but I was too young. And in 1986, the viewing geometry wasn't exactly well set up for a good view of the comet because it was on the opposite side of the Sun to the Earth. So, Comet Halley is what's called a short-period comet, which means it has an orbital period of less than 200 years. Its orbit is highly elliptical, meaning that it's nowhere near a circle like you might expect for most planets. But in fact, it's more like an oval shape, or elliptical. The true mathematical term is, is an ellipse. Not only is it elliptical, but the sun doesn't sit at the centre of the oval, of the ellipse. It sits closer to one end. The major axis, which is the distance along the long axis of the ellipse, is 35 times the distance from the Earth to the sun, also called 35 astronomical units, or 35 AU. For context, this is less than the distance to Pluto. At perihelion, the point at which it's closest to the Sun, it's only 0.5 AU from the Sun, which means at its furthest point, it's still about 35 AU away from the Sun, which is a little bit more than the distance to Neptune. Now we can use something called Kepler's third law to find out how long Halley takes to travel this path around the Sun. This law states that if we multiply the semi-major axis, that is half the long distance of the eclipse, by itself three times, we get a number that contains inside it the period of the orbit squared. Now, if we know the mass of the Sun and the strength of gravity, we can calculate that Halley takes around 75 years to travel around the Sun. And so if you were born at the right time, you might see Halley in your sky twice in your lifetime. Comet Halley will next reach its closest point to the Sun on the 28th of July, 2061, when I'll be 78 years old. Comet Hale-Bopp was the last great comet to grace the northern skies, but as far as I know, there's nothing that bright on its way into our skies at the minute. If you're lucky, Comet Tuttle Jayakabini Kresak, which I've probably massively mispronounced, may be a naked eye comet early in 2017 until March. But for Halley, we've a while to wait yet. This next question is from Asya. How many astronomers uh, are in space? Well, generally, astronomers do not go into space. Six astronauts are on board the International Space Station this month, which is December 2016 and none of them are astronomers. The NASA astronaut who is in command has an advanced degree in operations research, which is a subject where people focus on using maths to make management decisions. The other NASA astronaut has a PhD in biochemistry. The three Russian astronauts and the ESA astronaut from France all have backgrounds as pilots, although they also have some engineering training as well. Generally, astronauts have to have university degrees in science, math, or engineering, and some astronauts also need piloting experience if they're going to actually be piloting the spacecraft, but they do not need to specialize in astronomy. The reason why is because most of the work that astronauts do in space is not actually astronomy-related. A lot of the work that astronauts do includes either piloting the spacecraft or performing mechanical work on the spacecraft. Many science experiments are also conducted in space, but these experiments include biological, chemical, and medical experiments that, for obvious reasons, do not necessarily require training in astronomy. The reason why many of these experiments are performed in space is often because the spacecraft are zero-gravity, 
or technically microgravity environments, not because it is outside the Earth's atmosphere. Having said this, a small number of astronauts in the past have been astronomers. For example, Lauren Acton is a solar astronomer who flew on the space shuttle to perform observations of the sun. And George Nelson was another solar astronomer who uh, flew on the space shuttle to repair the Solar Max satellite, among other things he did on his three trips to space. In general, though, astronomers do not go into space, but instead send telescopes, planetary landers, and other types of spacecraft that they can operate remotely. This is mainly because it's technically easier to put a remote-controlled spacecraft into space and operate it for a few years, or even a few decades, than it is to put an astronomer up with a telescope and try to both operate the telescope and keep the astronomer alive in space for the same amount of time. Thanks for that, Ben, Minnie, and George. And now on to the feedback. So we've got some post this Hooray. month. Yay, post! It's a Christmas card! We have a Christmas card. Our first and only Christmas card. And it is from Pete Ellinger. And he says, Having listened to each and every one of your podcasts, thank you for all the enjoyment, education, and P.S. the humour. There's a lot of this in this one, actually. Yeah, humor. <laughs> yeah. If you could hear the uncut version, you'd be oh, in for dear a treat. Lord. <laughs> uh, on. P.S. The BBC should carry your show. Thanks for that, Pete Ellinger. And uh, just in case you're interested, the card is a lovely hill with lots of snow on it and people skiing and snowboarding. And no, they're not doing that, they're sledging. And people sledging and a man walking his dog. It is gorgeous. red coat. You've got all of life on that one card. Oh yeah, there are trees as well. It's like a a Lowry painting, actually. There's animals, vegetables and people. Monique Monique Henson and I actually discovered this card and we 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 opened it and we read it and we loved it and yes. uh, and we left it in here and now we're we're reading it out mm. um so that's it's what a hell of an undertaking to have listened to each episode unless pete has been listening since we started or has he just gone through all the past episodes in a so big whenever i pick marathon. up whenever i pick up a new podcast i usually listen to the most recent ones and then i go back a bit but if it was a 10-year one, I'd never go all the way back. Yeah. I don't think I'd be able to. I might go back to the first out of curiosity. Mm. Yeah. Although the but first is often not time. representative of the yeah. ones to come. Because there's still teething problems. Yeah. And, but actually, the first Jodcast was fantastic. Was it? I've never yeah. listened. Well, we got a sample of it at Jodcast Live, which we ah. played the, the very first few words of really? the Jodcast. Yeah. Oh, I've, you were there. I was there. I was there. I was so, like, focused on the moment. Pumped with adrenaline. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thanks for that, Pete. That's a really nice card. We'll put that up with... Uh... It is gorgeous, Pete. Thank you. And yeah. it's so lovely to get a Christmas card. Yes, it's the first, so, it's, so far, it's the only Christmas card we've got, so it will go with all our postcards, but hopefully we might get a and few yeah, more. And yeah, it does look like a Lowry painting, in a mm. sense. It's got these little people in little trees. And Lowry, as you know, was a famous Manchester artist. So yeah. It's gorgeous. So we have an email from Andrew Thomas who says, I've just listened to the November Extra Edition and found the interview with Katie Detweiler about the anthropology of the big data and astronomy fascinating. It was an interesting interview, but I found the technical language of anthropology a little bit daunting and impenetrable. You are so very good at explaining the astronomy jargon, so please invite Katie back and do some jargon busting. You invited suggestions for astronomically themed rock. I suggest Pioneers Over Sea by Van de Graaff Generator from the album H to H E Spiral Galaxy 28948 Hawkwind. Excellent podcast, Jod on Andrew. Yeah, well, I'm aware of Hawkwind and Van de Graaff Generators and Hydrogen and Helium, the H to H E, and Spiral Galaxies, but I've never 
add all those things together in the same sentence before. Wait, what's Hawkwind? Hawkwind, yeah. What is Hawkwind? It's a band. Oh, you were aware of the band, sorry. I'm aware of the band Hawkwind, Okay, yeah. but you weren't aware that they... Um... It's not an astronomical okay. phenomenon. Yeah, okay. we, like, we, we've, just... we've measured the speed of the Hawkwind. And we... thank you, Andrew, for that email. Um, yes, I hope, hopefully we will have Katie back. We also have some messages on Facebook. Uh, Bob Gagan has been in touch to say another great show, especially the two interviews. I was especially interested in Katie Detweiler's remarks on Alma Snaff and astronomers in general, not knowing what to make of an anthropologist. I also liked her awareness of a level of suspicion on the part of hard sciences toward the social sciences. Good to see it acknowledged with some sympathy instead of a dismissive tone. When she described anthropology as not believing in universals, it seemed she could be carving out a space for her own belief in some universals or at least an understanding that the hard sciences have valid reasons to pursue universal, impersonal truths. Thank you, Bob, for that. And we also have feedback from Ben Dyer, who says, Brilliant episode. Where can we see the film of Alma that was mentioned? That's a good question. We will try and find it from Katie Detweiler, and then, if we can, we'll put it in the show notes. Cool. Excellent. We also have a message on Facebook from Andrew Horner, who says, Really interesting interview with Katie Detweiler. For a different side to the practice of astronomy, and farewell, Joe, and thanks for your answers to our astronomical questions. Oh, well, I miss Joe. Yeah. I miss Joe. He's up in Edinburgh now, and that's great, but I really wish. He yeah, we're one down us. on our Ask an Astronomer yeah, Astronomers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we get the kids to do it. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, so uh, Andrew says thanks to Joe, both on the Jodcast and at outreach events, which Joe was uh, a big part of. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Well, Joe we, uh, he, did so, he did so much. We, we haven't heard the last of Joe. He'll be back. Definitely. Joe, I mean, like, yeah, it's my hope that, that there'll be more of Joe yeah. in our lives. I've Indeed. heard he's going to set up his own version of the Jodcast called the Jodecast. The Jodecast. Oh, no. I would totally listen to that. Yeah. I am lying, by the way. <laughs> but we, no, we should encourage him. Spin-off podcasts are good. There's no competition in podcast land. So There's it's cast. Yeah, yeah, like sell them serious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Great podcast. Yeah. Uh, Philip King says, I'm another here to applaud the excellent interview on Alma Anthropology, which managed to be informative and interesting about a fairly esoteric subject. Well done. So lots of lots of really good feedback from Katie's interview there. Yeah, so I'd like to something we should like uh, do yeah. more of, yeah. Mm. Excellent. There's nothing from Twitter or Flickr. So if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget, you can send us post. The address is on the website. Uh, So I guess all that's left now is to thank people. So thank you very much to Dr. Christina Romero-Canizales and Professor Mike Garrett for the interviews. The editors were Alex Clark. Damien Trin, George Bendo, and Tom Armitage, and the producer was Charlie Walker. So, until next time... Jod on! While Belle was in the pulsar room, the others were growing restless. She's been gone a long time. Did anyone see where she went? Yes, she went into the... The The pulsar pulsar room? room? I'm afraid so. Then we must save her. No one ever comes out of the pulsar room unchanged. Quick, grab those burning PhD theses. We're going to save her. And so, the angry mob descended on the pulsar room to save Belle. They flung the doors open and took in the scene before them. Fair maiden, 
I am here to save you from this Stygian hovel. How dare you? I'm perfectly fine, thank you. And so are we. It's incredible. I'm normal. So am I. <laughs> That's debatable. No, really, you did it. You saved us. What are all these idiots talking about, Fell? Well, they said they were under a curse. We were. We had to get someone genuinely interested in pulsars within the time scale of the age of the universe. Especially as pulsars are great timekeepers. Yes, thank you. But I just convinced them to listen to the podcast so they realized that there were other branches of astronomy besides pulsars. Once they heard it, they were cured. That's all very well, but have you decided what you're going to study? No, not yet. Well, while you decide, you're the new producer of the Jobcast. We need new people, especially ones that understand the founding principles of the show. What? But... I have too much work. I've got to give lectures. Me too. You're busy writing up. I'm only here part-time. We're too busy 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 too. And I can't believe you passed up the opportunity to tour the world showing off talking office furniture. Typical academics. But what am I going to do? I've never produced a podcast. Same as everyone. Make it up for a year and pass it on. It's a bit like a curse. A nice curse. But a curse nonetheless. And so... Our story has run its course. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you didn't, just look back at 2016. Then we praise what you've just heard. All better now, aren't we?